You are listening to Community Voices on NPR Illinois. I'm co-host Vanessa Ferguson. Today, we're listening back to the January Citizens Club of Springfield meeting, which featured Dr. Jerry Cruz, Dean and Provost of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine and the CEO of SIU Medicine. The discussion was moderated by Dr. Stephen Stone, Professor Emeritus at SIU School of Medicine. The conversation examines the impact of the pending health professional shortage on the Springfield community. Here's Dr. Stephen Stone with a brief presentation followed by Dr. Jerry Cruz. We've known for many years that the United States faces growing physician shortages. The COVID-19 pandemic only exacerbated those changes. And it's predicted that 10 years from now, these are the numbers we'll see. The specific projection is that from somewhere between 17,800 and and 48,000 primary physicians will be shortage, the shortage. 21,000 to 77,000 non-primary care physicians. That's the specialists that we train in our residency programs. This includes uh, shortages of, of in surgical specialties, you can see the numbers up there, in uh, medical specialties and the, the other specialties, uh, which are not generally classified as either surgical or medical. According to the U.S. Health Resources and, and Services Administration, we're in a shortage right now. And if you've called a, a health provider in Springfield and A, tried to get through, B, tried to get an appointment in the, in the near future, uh, you, you know how difficult it is uh, to see a physician, a nurse practitioner, even a physician's assistant as promptly as you would like. According to the AMA, there are over 800,000 physicians involved in direct patient care. Um, almost 145,000 of them are in residency training, which means they're being supervised by a board-certified uh, physician in that specialty. If the presently underserved populations had healthcare patterns similar to other countries, we'd be short between 100,000 and 200,000 physicians. Now, the impact of what people pejoratively called Obamacare, the Affordable Health Act, was to introduce another 40 million covered lives. So at the same time we're seeing a shortage build, we're seeing an increase in demand for physician services. To mention briefly the, the COVID epidemic or pandemic, uh, about 3,500 healthcare workers across the board died during that first year. About 17% were physicians and one in three were nurses. So this hit the nursing specialty quite hard as well. Within the next decade, two out of every five physicians in the United States will be 65 or older, almost as old as I am. Uh, reports of burnout in, in all medical specialties. It used to be dermatology used to be the happiest medical specialty. Well, we're seeing burnout there too. Physicians retiring early, just want to get out of it. Uh, lots of reasons for that, and I'm sure Dr. Cruz will mention that. And then the advance uh, Nurse practitioners, uh, uh, physician's assistants, the, the other advanced practitioners who are not MDs uh, are increasing significantly, uh, but not enough to keep up with the, uh, the increase in demand. Like I said, 40 million new covered lives just from that one bill that passed. So uh, things are going to be interesting. And with that, I'll ask Dr. Cruz to come forward and so it's a, it's a great pleasure to be here today. Thank you very much for the uh, invitation. 
thanks very much to Norm Sims for the great background paper that he wrote on this. It was very helpful uh, to me. You've already heard that it's not only uh, pending a shortage of healthcare professionals, but we have a shortage right now. Uh, I'm going to talk about some of the broader concepts that relate to that. Uh, you know, I will talk about some categories of solutions to the problems. I am a family physician, and so uh, my expertise both here in Springfield and nationally has been with the physician workforce. And I'll start by saying that the magnitude of shortages uh, right now in this area and probably across the United States is more in the, the nursing, those areas that are clinically facing the patients for first contact when they come to the office, the, the receptionists and the others, and that uh, issues related to the physician shortage are probably a little bit, uh, little bit less than that. Some uh, broad concepts here. The shortages that we'll talk about are lo both local and national. Uh, some shortages are absolute in the United States, but m a lot of them, maybe even the majority of them, are caused by maldistribution of health professionals. The shortages are due mainly to inefficiencies in systems of care in the United States. And so that is one of the big points today, and you should listen very carefully as we go through the rest of the data related to this. The United States healthcare systems, plural, are inefficient and fragmented, and that inefficiency and fragmentation is the major factor that leads to shortages of healthcare professionals. As a matter of fact, the U.S. healthcare systems are perfectly designed to have perpetual shortages in health professionals. As Steve said, the shortages have been accentuated by COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, they're also accentuated by inequities in access to healthcare and inequities in delivery of care, which are stark in the United States. Inequities uh, lead to more complications. They lead to higher consumption, less efficiency, and a shortage in the workforce, as well as all the other things that are led to by inequities in healthcare. Also, uh, you know, actually, interestingly enough, the aging population, the real issue with that is, uh, is occurring over uh, a 30-year period of time. And we are right in, at the 15-year mark and uh, we've handled that a little bit better than would have been predicted. So I probably won't say much more about that. So then the solutions require discipline and patience for sure. Health professional shortages and data sources. So data produced by specialty professional organizations is very often inaccurate and is politically motivated by that specialty organization. So be careful with those. Most data sources estimate shortages for health system that we now have rather than an optimally designed healthcare system. We should think about both of those things. All of us should think about where are the best sources of comparative data. Uh, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development is an organization that spans the 38 uh, industrialized nations in the world. Its data is excellent. It actually looks at systems across the world and all other countries as well, but it's very reliable information. How do we know that? Because the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, has made a point of validating information from various sources about its effectiveness, how it's put together, whether it uh, really ha has the type of foundational principles that make it real, and so the CIA actually compiles some of that information in the CIA World Factbook, which is great information for you to look at. And then data from the Council on Graduate Medical Education 
is also a very highly accurate information as well. So I'm going to talk about counseling graduate medical education for a minute now, COGMI. Uh, that is the HHS organization that makes recommendations about physician workforce to the Secretary of HHS, to the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, and to the Subcommittee on Health of the Energy and Commerce Committee. So I was fortunate enough to be on that committee uh, from 2007 to 2011, first appointed by Michael Levitt of the Bush administration, and then reappointed by Kathleen Sebelius of the Obama administration. So we got information that had not been published yet. We got it from the OECD. We got personal visits from the Government Accountability Office, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission. We had communications through uh, papers from the CIA. And uh, we were uh, given the real warning at that time that any recommendation we made should make sure that healthcare expenditures never got above 20% of the GDP. We were operating at 18.4% at that time and, and heading up. And the worry from all of those government agencies was that if we spent more than 20% on healthcare, we would not have enough for defense, transportation, education, and social services, the things that keep us a first world country. The bottom line on that is that the solutions may be not throwing more money at it. Now, Steve mentioned the ACA. When the ACA came in, actually, our, our spending on health care went down to 17.2%, despite the infusion of the new patients into the system. It just shows, shows you that having everybody insures is a step toward more efficiency, not greater burden, actually. After Obama, um, it went back up to about 18.4% and we're hovering about 18.2% right now. COGMI uh, made recommendations about physician specialties that were in absolute shortage, not just a geographic maldistribution. So throughout the time that I was on COGMI, the ones that were always in a shortage were all primary care physicians, family physicians, general internists, general pediatricians, geriatricians, psychiatrists, general and child psychiatrists, and then at the end, as I was leaving COGMI, general surgery and general urology were being added. Guess what? There has been a fading from generalism of all kinds in the United States. General pharmacists, general dentists, dental hygienists, it goes on and on and on. General orthopedic surgeons. It, it is something that has led to greater inefficiency, for sure. For the nurses, the United States does rank in the top 10 for OECD nations. For physicians, our physician supply compared to other wealthy industrialized nations per capita is very low. Uh, the U.S. spends 6% of its healthcare spending on primary care. The nations that don't experience great shortages, spend 12 to 18%. So that's, uh, that's a big one there, as a matter of fact. Thanks for listening to our coverage of the January Citizens Club of Springfield meeting. Stay with us. 
Thanks for listening to Community Voices on NPR Illinois as we listen back to the January Citizens Club of Springfield meeting featuring Dr. Jerry Cruz, the CEO of SIU Medicine. We've just heard Dr. Cruz share some of the challenges the medical industry faces. We'll now hear more from Dr. Cruz and some of the solutions to the pending health professional shortage. Here's Dr. Cruz. Also at Cogme, uh, we received presentations from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, from healthcare economists, Lewin Group, Altarum. And this is from Barbara Starfield, who's the director of the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. She's a pediatrician. She, is, she put together all the characteristics of efficient, effective, and equitable healthcare systems for the industrialized nations in the world. She found that in general, they all had adequate supplies of specialty physicians, but here are the characteristics that made those differences for those three E's at the top of that slide. One, regional assessment of health needs. The United States has never done that. There was a provision in the Affordable Care Act for a, a national workforce commission. The people who were on that commission were named, but there was no appropriation for it in the bill, and there was never an appropriation for it. So this problem was set to be solved in 2014, and nothing has happened. Two, universal access to care guaranteed by a publicly accountable body. So the United States is near universal health care right now. We have 27 million of our 332 million uninsured, better than the 50 million that it was before, but still uh, less than 95%. Three, highly regulated insurance function. More on that later. Next one, no out-of-pocket expenses for primary care services or mental health services. That goes contrary to everything that, that we have in our insurance world in the United States. Co-pays, deductibles, etc. Five, narrow range of physician incomes. U.S. has the highest in the world. Six, high supply of primary care physicians. We have one of the lowest. Uh, relatively speaking, in the world. And then high percentage of people that have a relationship with the usual source of comprehensive longitudinal care, which is the definition of primary care. Again, there's a lot of details to that. More later, maybe. But here's, here's one detail. So this is also out of the Johns Hopkins it's Bloomberg School of Public Health. Jose Valderas and Barbara Starfield examined 1,275,000 office visits to consulting specialty physicians in the United States. And they found that almost half of the visits, 46.3%, to consulting specialists are better handled by primary care physicians or are not necessary at all. Now think about that for a minute. And think about that as a measure of efficiency or, or inefficiency. If those, those visits took place in the proper venue, just think of the lessening of the effect of the shortage that there would be. So when this is discussed, the issues that relate to this finding are there is a relative ease of access to specialty care in the United States compared to the rest of the industrialized world. And then many of the other nations have a science of wait time. You know, you might hear horror stories about waiting for care in Canada and Great Britain. But if you know the truth of all of the data related to that, you'll know that the, their science of wait time makes sure that the people that need care now almost always get it. 
and uh, with some of the of the pressures that we've had at SIU Medicine to see more patients over the past two years uh, in a very uh, informal kind of way we have had to do this with patients and uh, I, I think it's uh, something that deserves a lot of, uh, of discussion. Something else is now arising through healthcare, and that is the rising influence of private equity and venture capital firms in healthcare. So th this is a fact. Private equity firms are acquiring, acquiring more hospital systems, hospitals, and practices. It's a kind of an exponential rise. Uh, their goal to grow these enterprises and is to grow the enterprises and sell their stakes in three to seven years. Okay, as Aguero Sarducci said, right? The economics of 101. Uh, buy things for a one price to sell for more, right? That's, yeah, that's it. So that's that. Three, a much greater uh, portion of healthcare dollar goes to profit, to the stakeholders, et cetera, and leaves less for the delivery of healthcare. Lower pay for health professionals accentuates the shortage. So that's one to keep in mind as well. Now, regulation, over-regulation, under regulation, correct regulations is what we need. So the two things at the top in green need, in my opinion, more regulation. The three things in red below need, need a little bit less regulation. Uh, again, the, the, four, the private equity uh, venture capital uh, issue right now, uh, there, there are attempts at regulation that are running through Congress right at the moment. I won't mention more to this, but standardization of training for some of uh, the health profession's educational efforts uh, is needed. Three, HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accessibility Act of 1996. When I was on COGMI, David Walker, the, the Comptroller General of the United States and the best economic predictor I have ever seen in my life and the head of the Government Accountability Office, he gave us this example about HIPAA. He, he told us that the cost of HIPAA to healthcare in the United States was $8 billion a year. Over its life now, a quarter of a trillion dollars. That was his first slide. His second slide was a blank one. That was entitled The Tangible Benefits of HIPAA. He, he could find none. And that's an example of inefficiency as well. Here's a big one. Health information technology. During the pandemic, regulations were loosened. We could see our patients with FaceTime. It was great. We learned that 10 to 15% of all visits are better taken care of by virtual means rather than in person. And we can go into that. There's a science behind that as well. And that extends to all, all other areas of virtual technology. And then electronic medical records. I had my practice in Quincy. One of my friends became the, the doctor at the outpatient of VA clinic there, just as electronic records were coming in. He said to me, I've become the highest paid secretary in the state of Illinois. <laughs> and it's true. Uh, the documentation for not only physicians, but nurses and all other healthcare professionals dramatically decreases efficiency and attention needs to be paid to that. And then uh, the other one, working at the top of the license, working at the top of the training, there are regulations, and sometimes it's self-imposed, uh, sometimes they're, they're governmental. But the issue is, if you look at the, the type of uh, jobs that are listed here, healthcare technicians and medical assistants 
can do many of the things that are now done by LPNs and RNs. And we don't have enough healthcare technicians and MAs. And so once more of them are trained, then the things that are done by RNs, or that done by, by RNs that could be done by LPNs, we'd have a greater capacity for the LPNs to do that, and so on, up that list. Uh, this is one where we can have a local impact, and I'll say a, a, just a word about that in just a minute. But anyway, these are the kind of things that we need to focus on when we think about where do we need to start training because of the multiplier effect that ripples out as you train the proper amount of people who do a lot of the foundational and very important work. COVID-19 actually, well, what I'll say about that is that we saw a rise of traveling nurses and people for contract labor. The cost of that was very much higher. Uh, it didn't fulfill all of the shortages that we had, so it became a great burden uh, to our hospitals in the area. And uh, I think they're still trying to recover from that. I think we all saw, though, that it, it brought something to light, that the compensation for uh, clinical positions, and particularly uh, nursing services, needed to be taken into careful consideration now. And interestingly enough, uh, over the pandemic, we saw the continued fall of generalism in healthcare. I think it was a continuing pattern, not necessarily accentuated. If we're going to address this issue and it's gonna be sustainable for the future, these are the things that need to get done. So US healthcare system reform, we need to choose one system. We have four, right? We have the German model, that's the private insurance model. We have that for 130 million people. However, the German model is highly regulated and there is a mandate for universal coverage. Everybody's insured. Not that every professional likes that in Germany, but that's, that's true. We have the Canadian model. That's the Medicare, Medicaid model, where there's a single payer reaching out to private physicians and private health groups, oftentimes through insurance intermediaries. We have 150 million of those. 90 million Medicaid, 60 million Medicare. We have a lot of experience with this system. And the people who receive the universal care from that love it. We have the British model in the United States. That's the almost completely socialized model. We have 22 million people who get care from the Indian Health Service and from Veterans Affairs. Single payer, physicians are owned. That's the British model. That probably won't fly very well across the United States. Then there's the third world model, no insurance. We have 27 million people in the third world model in this country. That doesn't fly either. Should be eliminated immediately. Anyway, that's a discussion because getting to one system would dramatically improve the efficiency no matter which one of the first three that we picked. Sweeping healthcare payment reform. A lot of countries do payment incentives for shortage areas and marginalized populations. We don't. That actually, when implemented nationwide, leads to efficiencies. Uh, reform of the payment system, that's three other talks, right? <laughs> um, and then fund and expand the Affordable Care Act, establish that National Healthcare Workforce uh, Commission, 
and reinstitute the, the, the five-year incentives for primary care that, that fell away and are not there anymore. Okay, mid-range uh, solutions. Increase the production of medical schools and residency training programs. Well, this is a really interesting one. One, reduce the length of training could be done. You know, we have uh, a, a lot more virtual means now and we can do, do some of the training faster. Now here's one that's frequently bantered around. Increase the number of medical school and residency positions. And this is a big issue because the Balanced Budget Act of 1996 put a cap on the number of residency positions in the United States. Now residency training positions in the United States are funded by who? Medicare, CMS, right? So Medicare, when it was established in 1963 in the US, it provided universal coverage for seniors and it provided payment to hospitals for residency training programs, right? In 1996, they said, we're gonna put a cap on that. So what happened? In 1995, there were 16,000 medical uh, positions for medical students in the United States a year. Now there's 29,000. That's an 81% increase. In 1995, there were 21,500 residency positions for the 16,000 medical students. Now, there are 40,300. That's an 87% increase. Our population has increased 25% over that period of time. But guess what the problem is? SIU School of Medicine was established in the 1970s, one of 22 medical schools that started in the 70s. In the 1980s and 1990s, one medical school opened. Now think about the age of those doctors now. You know, they are the, they're the bulk of, or they're a big piece of the physician workforce, and there were no increases then. There have been 70 new medical schools since 2000. So in 10, 20 years, we're gonna see the positive effect of that already. No, address student debt, it's a big issue. SIU students graduate with $220,000 debt as a median. That's a lot. And so National Health Service Corps, establishing national medical schools, having state and local programs for that debt relief or scholarships or some early uh, form of payment is a big one. Engage local educational institutions for solutions. A lot of people have been doing that. So at SIU School of Medicine, we've been reaching out to the high schools to see if we could get a lot of people trained to be medical assistants so they could step right into the workforce and understand our systems. And as they grow, to move on up into higher levels of care. That makes us smile, as a matter of fact. Uh, also, our, uh, our hospital partners have a rural referral designation and can start new residency programs and get funding for it outside the Balanced Budget Act now. So we have some mechanisms of solutions there. And then the local solutions, I think, are, are quite important and deserve a, a lot of discussion. So number one, em embrace and improve technology. So telehealth and then e-care and everything that comes with, us, with it. The recommendation here would be for Springfield to become as expert and facile at this as they absolutely could absolutely as quickly as they could. And we have some good examples about that that we might hear about in a bit. Permanent regulatory change, just keep the regulatory changes that occurred during COVID-19, they need to be made permanent. We all know that artificial intelligence is gonna do 
could do a lot to improve efficiency if applied appropriately. We'll keep that in mind. Collaborative programs, collaboration between uh, the Department of Human Services, uh, State of Illinois, SIU School of Medicine is an example here. The SIU School of Medicine Behavioral Health Workforce Center just got off the ground this year. It's already showing some astounding results in increasing uh, the spots for training and the people who will be our mental health professionals of the future. That's a winner. Expand the reach of federally qualified health centers, another discussion in and of itself. Expand local health professional training programs. So, local health professional training programs. So, at SIU, we have 320 medical students a year graduate 80 a year. Residents, we graduate about 105. That's about 185 physicians graduating a year. More than 6,100 physicians have completed our program since 1970. 200 SIU grads practice in Springfield. More than that, and we don't know exactly how many more than that, of our residency grads practice here too. Four, five, six hundred, somewhere in that region total between those two groups. It's become the heart and soul because they, they trained here. It was an advantage. Our clinical practice, 330 physicians, more than 300 advanced practice professionals, providing over 1,300,000 patient visits. They're the teachers for this, uh, this new workforce. So our field of dreams is this. If you train them, they will stay. We have a nursing school at St. John's. We have other nursing schools that have come in. We have other training programs. We need more physical therapists, more occupational therapists, more counselors, more LCSWs, more LCPCs, more dental hygienists, more pharmacists. The community should think about how we get this done so that this is really our field of dreams. If you train them, they will stay. Thanks for listening to Community Voices on NPR Illinois. We'll have more from the Citizens Club of Springfield when we return. Stay with us. You're listening to Community Voices on NPR Illinois. Today, we've listened back to the January Citizens Club of Springfield presentation regarding the impact of the pending health professional shortage in Springfield. We've heard from Dr. Jerry Cruz, CEO of SIU Medicine, about the challenges the medical industry faces and some of the possible solutions. We now return to our coverage of the event as Dr. Stephen Stone moderates the question and answer portion of the event. Here's Dr. Stephen Stone. I'm going to go to the audience because I think uh, hopefully you've, you've got some questions, but I was going to ask you just a couple of things. Do you think some of the shortage today is due to the federal government not keeping up on the funding of residency programs? Uh, I'm, actually, I, I see a number of residency programs that are filling with physicians who trained, didn't even train in the U.S. system, but uh, uh, do you think the funding is adequate in residency? So, the Balanced Budget Act capped, uh, two things happened with that. One, there are some special programs developed, you know, around the edges that are, have probably not been effective as they should have been. Hospitals, recognizing the value of resident physicians, actually went, went above the cap. 
I will just say that the initial intent of the, the Medicare Act of 1963 was really to fund the residency positions that were needed, and that has not kept up. And I think, uh, you know, just for uh, working with our ho hospital partners all the time, that yes, some, some reform and some easing of that, uh, that act of 1996 needs to be done if we're thinking about working on efficiency within the, in the entire system. We have done pretty well at increasing the number of medical stu students and the number of uh, resident uh, physicians. And so uh, probably looking at length of training might be a more immediate solution than, than changing the total number of funding. I think that some of the funding does need to shift back to the Medicare program from what the hospitals are doing themselves. Some years ago, there was an effort to uh, increase the output by, by setting up three-year medical schools as opposed to the four-year schools, and SIU was a part of that experiment. Where do you think that's going? Yeah, SIU was part of that experiment. Uh, though um, what medical students do is governed by the Accreditation Council on Graduate Medical Education, the ACGME. We have uh, just been through an accreditation visit. <laughs> the, the regulations are burdensome, <laughs> to, yes. say, to say the least. So when the SIU School of Medicine uh, started as a three-year uh, school, it was three years straight through. There was, in, in essence, one week of vacation a year for those students, and the students actually had full days, six days of the week. And uh, it just uh, became pretty much uh, untenable, I think. I think, actually, there are, there are probably people more expert in this audience to talk about this than, than me. But to keep up with, with the ACGME uh, regulations and give a reasonable life to the students, we went to, to four years training. Now, there are newer technologies to you know, get, get the knowledge imparted. Uh, we know very well how to develop uh, critical thinking skills for students and, uh, you know, how to, uh, you know, assess them as, as adults now. So there could be some national examination of decreasing the time of medical school or residency training program or, in some ways, doing some standardization of what pre-medical students do as undergrads so that perhaps maybe they could uh, be prepared to take one of their first national exams before they entered medical school rather than having two during medical school and one during residency. That would speed things up too. So there, there's definitely room to, for improvement in that. Uh, I was going to ask, by the way, and then I'm going to turn it to the audience. In the recent, I don't know, four years, since the beginning of COVID, we've seen a significant amount of uh, denigration of scientific fact, uh, if I can use that phrase, of everything from climate change to vaccines, vaccine safety, vaccine effectiveness. Do you think that has uh, affected the attractiveness of the medical professions to young people? That's a good question. I think the answer to that remains to be seen. But uh, we could speculate it, uh, on it a little bit that, uh, you know, uh, if that becomes a more widespread and, and a widely held view, uh, yes, you might expect, you know, fewer, uh, fewer people from, from enrolling in those uh, programs. You know, again, just from a regulatory s standpoint, uh, you know, we have to be really good about teaching the scientific <laughs> method, as a matter of fact. And, and are you know pushing forward with that as well? So um, I, I think it's probably a factor that that'll need more evaluation. 
Thank you. Uh, any question from the audience? Hi there. Um, my name is Dr. Lisa Smith. I'm an advanced practice nurse in pediatrics. My question would be, do you find that some of the shortage in physicians and things have to do with, I mean, I know most physicians and nurse practitioners now go into groups of physicians and work for, you know, hospitals or SIU or whatever. The rise of malpractice insurance and the practice of defensive medicine now with referring to specialists when we used to be, 20 years ago I handled that stuff. You know, asthmatics, GERD problems. Instead now people are expecting that we refer to specialists and you almost have to in order to protect yourself. This is causing an increase in you know costs and things like you were talking about. And we're sending these kids and people to specialists when we we used to be able to just manage those things ourselves. So I want to know your take on that and the cost of just practicing medicine as an independent person, independent physician, is just, it's disappearing. So yeah. I just want to see your, your take on that. Sure, thanks. Thanks for being part of the team, yes. you know, team, team member, no doubt about it. So a national tort reform was part of what was originally in the Affordable Care Act before it was passed in 2010, but it was taken out. So that, that, that's one of the things that, that was not done nationally at that time. I think uh, most of you know that tort reform has been passed by the uh, Illinois legislature several times, and each time has been, I think, struck down by the courts, uh, as a matter of fact. So it's a very, it's a very difficult thing uh, to get to. I think uh, in, uh, in some specialties, uh, the effect of what you have described is, is greater, uh, greater than others uh, for sure. You know, I, I've been an expert witness a few times and been sued once myself. And, you know, it, it, it does strike a fear, uh, strike a fear into you uh, uh, for sure. And uh, I think there's, uh, there's no doubt that it, it, it has some effect on all that we're, we're talking about uh, today. I, I, I don't think I could, uh, you know, quantitate uh, that effect, I, I would say. But, um, you know, I, I would say I would just uh, comment on uh, advanced practice nurses, advanced practice professionals, ad advanced practice uh, clinicians uh, working together as teams. I think, you know, as that, uh, as that develops to a greater degree in this country, I think we might be able to mitigate some of the things that, that relate to the malpractice um, issue. Uh, there are far fewer malpractice claims now filed than there were before. The judgments are dramatically higher than they have been, and uh, that probably, you know, more than than makes uh, up for that. But you know, as we do start to work together, perhaps there's ways in which self-insurance funds can can occur, and that's what happens with the SIU School of Medicine, and that's that's very good for us to help, you know, mitigate the fear of that and the amount of effect that it has. So I think there's a lot of things along, along the path of, uh, of, your, of your question that need consideration. To follow up to that, do you think uh, the increasing use of the team approach in medical delivery uh, is going to at least mitigate to some extent the excessive referrals? I, a patient who comes in with a, a skin problem my specialty, uh, and uh, immediately get sent by the primary care physician to a dermatologist rather than solving it within the practice. Yeah, so, you know, this is an interesting one, too, because, uh, you know, there have been big increases in, in numbers in advanced practice nurses 
uh, nurse practitioners and uh, physician assistants. Their largest place of increase of employment has been in hospitals. Uh, the second largest has been in specialty offices, and the smallest has been has been for for primary care. So, you you saw the the small number of primary care physicians, three per per ten thousand people, right? So you have to build a team, and so we're we're not close to having the elements you know, to build those, those broader teams to do that care. That's a long-term project, I would say. I, and yes, it is gonna be a solution, uh, a solution, some kind of partial solution to this problem, but I think, uh, you know, that'll take a lot of close examination too. This is kind of about new treatments and experimental treatments, like for uh, immunotherapy to treat cancer. How is it determined in the Springfield community, who's eligible for that kind of treatment? That's determined by insurance companies, oh, the, whether it's covered or not. It's incredibly expensive. It can be done without insurance, but you'd have to have a fortune right, to, but to get mean, it done. Initially, it has to be rec at least recommended by the physician, uh, correct? Absolutely. There are many, uh, many insurance companies that require standard chemotherapy fail before yes. immu immunotherapy starts and you know, oftentimes that's too late, as they say. Yeah. It's, it's sad, as a matter of fact. Uh, again, it, it gets into my for-profit, private equity, venture capital kind of slide about how those things will become available to the general population because the immunotherapy is a dramatic advance for the treatment of all sorts of things, cancer and beyond, for sure. Mike Houston, first of all, let me make a comment. and. Dr. Cruz, you said that we have about 200 physicians in the Springfield area that have graduated. But if you go back to when SIU was established, it was really established to be able to provide doctors for Southern Illinois. And I would hate to think what Southern Illinois would be like medically without the medical school, because you really have fulfilled that. As good as it's been here, it's better down south. So I compliment the school for, for that. I have a couple questions. Number one, when you talked in terms of for-profit hospitals and not-for-profit hospitals, do most people realize that on Medicare, the refunding does not cover the cost of providing the service? On Medicaid, it's closer. So that if you go to that type of system, What's that going to do to the hospital systems across the country? The second question I have, as you take a look at physicians today, they are different physicians than when you graduated from medical school or Dr. Stone graduated from medical school. They work more of a five-day week than what physicians who were not employed by systems regardless of what the system is, and what effect does that have? I could go on with other questions, but I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, those, that's a good set, Mike, <laughs> I'd say, for sure. So, um, so uh, the first one. So I think your question is, is if we went to one system and we picked the so-called Canadian system, uh, and given that its reimbursement doesn't really cover the costs that that hospitals have, how would that work? 
So, uh, you know, that the only way that would work would be if, if there were enough extra that were allocated to reimbursement for that to occur. So I think it's pretty easy to say right now that uh, Medicare and Medicaid, for some of their things, have been able to uh, repay or to pay at a, at a lower level because there have been other mechanisms for organizations through the private insurance payments to cover that. You know, that would clearly have to be reconciled or a system like that would not, uh, would not work. The, the countries in the world that have that, Canada, which, which has a, a full system that way, and many of the Western European nations, uh, you know, have something like that, you know, universal single-payer coverage through private, uh, private doctors have found ways to give uh, appropriate allocations for that, that to work, right? Um, the second one, you know, relates to, uh, to the characteristics of uh, work of uh, the new generations and uh, in, in some ways, you know, there's been a lot of talk about them, uh, you, you know, not being identified by their work but by identified by themselves, as a matter of fact. I think it, it really does remain to be seen about what that output is going to be. I will say that that generation actually knows how to work as a team much better than my generation did without, uh, without question and they know how to communicate efficiently. So they bring a little bit of a, of a different uh, attitude to the workforce, and they bring some characteristics that are better than the ones that we had. And, uh, you know, we'll just have to see how, how all that occurs. <laughs> you know, okay, I'm just raising my eyebrow now, thinking back across my career, as a matter of fact. But, you know, I do appreciate that, uh, that question, and would be happy to have anybody else comment on that who wanted to. Um, and I'd also say that of uh, you know our 6,100 uh, grads of the medical school, they've done a good job of covering the 66 counties, the 66 southwesternmost counties in Illinois that we consider our region of uh, of social accountability. Uh, about 40% of them practice in those 66 counties or a two-county border around it, and so that's a mission fulfiller. And uh, you know we're. Uh, we're proud of that, and we're proud that we have a, a pretty good a balance of physicians that we that we provide related to uh, primary care and specialty physicians. We're also we are proud that we do train physicians to cover all specialties as well, and hope that we can uh, remain uh, part of the solution of uh, the the problems and like the two questions you brought up. We have time for one more question. Norm Sims, first, thank you for the kind comments on the briefing paper. Mike, you mentioned the establishment of the school in the 1970s, which brought to my mind that this was an issue that was part of the national collegiate debate topic in 1973. So 50 years ago, we were talking about this issue and predicting a lot of what was happening. And so the, the question I have is, what can patients do to ensure they're getting good care in these situations, and what can patients do to create the energy necessary, necessary to actually address the problem that we didn't address in the 70s? Okay, I will say two things. <clears throat> patients, the entire population, should, should demand that there's universal health care coverage guaranteed by a publicly accountable body for everyone. That would be a step forward. 
The second thing that they can do is understand the local dynamics and understand what the shortages in training are in, in the local area and pick some and get behind some specific ones. And then that those that have a vision for a national impact, all of the board certifying agencies, all of the professional bodies now are adding consumer members, lots of them. And so find out about those and join up. That's what I'd say. And, and make sure your elected officials at all levels know, uh, know that this is a concern. Now, I want to say one other thing. I, I want to get back to the RVUs again. So when the RVU system was coming in in the late 1980s, well, the, the physicians in Quincy were all worried about this. And so one of the two architects of that system was a great healthcare economist, Uwe Reinhardt yes. from Princeton University. And he was invited to come to, to Quincy to address all the physicians. And we were in a, in a meeting about like this, a big room like this, physicians were, were in there. And one of the ophthalmologists was really worried that the cataract surgeries for which they were getting about $6,000 an eye at that point with the new intraocular lens transplants was gonna go down. And so after Reinhardt finished, uh, finished his, uh, his presentation, uh, there were questions. So one of the ophthalmologists put up his hand, how can you even think about reducing what we get paid for intraocular lens implants? He says, it gives people the gift of sight, a life, I mean, get gift of sight. That's priceless. So Reinhardt, he got, he got over the podium, he took off his glasses and he said, if that were true, these glasses would be worth $8,000. <laughs> so te technology changes and you know, the people, the people who are gonna make it are those that adapt, right? Not necessarily the strongest, nor the smartest, nor those with the most re resources. It's those that can adapt to changes like that. And so that's what we need to be doing. Thanks for listening to our coverage of the Citizens Club of Springfield on Community Voices.